Before we go to the text this morning, let me open with this illustration. There's things about this that I hate, but there's one thing about it that I love, and that's the fact that they can get GPS on this, and that wherever I go, I simply put in an address, and it will get me there. That's amazing, because I come from the era where you have paper maps that you have to unfold that you can never refold to get back in the same way that they were when you bought them. But the GPS system is great. It even talks to me, as yours does, saying things like, in 600 feet, turn right. Or take the exit. Yet when it says that, it says it with a little bit too much emphasis for me. Sometimes I'll just miss the exit because I don't want to be that obedient to a voice on my phone. But I've used the GPS as we all have. It, it really is such a help. When Charlotte and I were on our sabbatical back in 2018, we were able to visit a number of the national and state forests across our nation, and we used it a lot. I'm reminded of one time when I was, we were together in South Dakota, and I noticed that there was a certain park that I wanted to go visit. It's called Wind Cave National Park. I like Carlsbad Caverns, just different caves. I enjoy that, but I'm the only one in my family that does. So I woke one morning early and put in from the internet the address to Wind Cave National Park and headed out. And Siri was directing me turn to turn with that ever-confident tone. But she surprised me with a turn left here. And so I left the paved highway, began to drive on a dirt road for a little while. Interesting, I thought. But national parks usually are way off the beaten path, so not a problem. And that was taking me a bit longer than I thought. And then to my surprise, Siri confidently proclaimed, you have arrived. Well, as I pulled off the dirt road and looked around, I was in the middle of nowhere. I looked and saw no signs, no cars, no people, no buildings, not even a paved road in sight. Siri had confidently led me to the wrong location. I trusted Siri, and she led me wrong. That morning, my trust in Siri was not well-placed, and that misplaced trust left me lost. Fortunately, though, through some backtracking and just using some common sense, I was able to find the park and enjoy the day. But in our passage today, the reason I bring that illustration is the passage today shows us, Paul is showing us the danger of misplaced trust. But this misplaced trust that Paul is showing us here in 2 Corinthians has, much, has a much more significant consequence than my GPS experience. My trust in Siri only got me to the wrong location. Paul is helping us to see that misplaced trust while going through trials, suffering, affliction, difficulty in our lives has a far more dangerous outcome. Our hope is placed on what we trust. So when our trust is misplaced, we're headed for eventual discouragement, disappointment, and even spiritual danger. So let's jump into the text today and let's see how Paul is guiding the Corinthians and through them, us. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, going through verse 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So the main idea I'd like for you to walk away from at the end of this sermon, from this text, would be this. Placing our hope in God enables us to endure all adversity. Placing our hope in God enables us to endure all adversity. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your text, opening up your words, the privilege that I have this morning to preach from your word, and Lord, my prayer is that your word would be faithfully taught. Father, in my prayer for myself is the clarity in preaching your word, the prayer for us as a church. Lord, is to receive your word, to apply your word, and to allow your word to inform direct our hearts to live more like Christ each and every day. Father, bless our time together. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. I ask your grace, Lord, as I preach in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I've got three points that I pulled out of this text that I'd like for us to focus on. The first point is this. Trials are difficult, stating the obvious. Trials are difficult. The second point, trials are revealing. And the third point, trials bring opportunity. So let's begin with that first point. Trials are difficult. Looking at verses 8 and the first sentence in verse 9. Paul's experience was difficult. So difficult that he thought that the only deliverance he would experience from whatever this trial was, was death itself. We don't know what Paul was experiencing. It's not articulated in Scripture, but we know that it was very severe. It was a very severe affliction or trial. There is some thought that the event that's recorded in Acts 19, where there's a riot in Ephesus, an insurrection that really had Paul in the center of that, that this is what is in view here, but that's just conjecture. We, we don't know what is being referred to. We just know that it's very severe, and Paul explains it in this way in verse 8. We were utterly burdened or under great pressure. The allusion here is to a wearied animal that sinks in despair under a burden that is beyond its strength. Utterly burdened. Next, that we despaired of life itself. This is an intense expression. To, be at utter, to utterly be at a loss, absolutely without a way of escape, that's what's being communicated here. It seemed impossible to Paul that he could escape from whatever his enemies were bringing, whatever the peril or the trial. His deliverance seemed impossible. And in verse 9, indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. 
So far from expecting to live, the apostle says he felt the sentence or the verdict of death. In other words, he didn't expect to escape with his life. And Paul knows trial. If we look further on in the book, if we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 through 28, he articulates trial that he's experienced. So let me just review that. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, I... In, uh, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew trial. But in Paul's opinion, in his perspective, he's not referring to any of these situations when he's referring to this that was more severe to him. What might that be? We don't know. But whatever your trial is this morning that you've walked in with, it can feel this severe. It can feel to you maybe never-ending. Let the Word of God speak to you this morning and help you to focus your attention and your trust in God, maybe in a deeper way. Paul was able to, and we're going to recount his review here. But whatever his trial was, whatever yours is, this this trial even caused Paul to fall into despair. Just like it was with Paul, trials bring burdens for us to carry. Paul said that they were burdened beyond their ability to endure. Trials are real. They bring real burdens into our lives that we must carry in getting through them. Just as Paul did. The burden can be physical issues. It can be physical danger. It can be a number of external situations, but it can also be spiritual danger as well, and that's where Paul is focusing our attention today. He doesn't describe the physical danger, but he does describe the spiritual danger so that the Corinthians, as well as us, do not repeat the same mistake he made. Paul is pointing us to the danger of misplaced trust. What Paul relied upon, what he looked to for rescue, for deliverance, was the focus. Through his trial, through this trial, Paul found that he was relying too much on himself to get through this difficult situation. In other words, Paul's misplaced trust and confidence for rescue was placed on himself. We see that in verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So trials are difficult. We don't have to be reminded of that. But number two, the point, trials are revealing. 
Trials are distasteful, they're unwanted, they're difficult, and we certainly can live without them, but they are a part of our life. And what Paul is helping us to see is that as difficult as trials are, they're useful to the believer. Our response to trials reveals things about us. Specifically, trials reveal things about what motivates us, about what's important to us, about what we love, and in that, what's ruling our thoughts, our motives, our actions. See, Paul had it revealed to him through this affliction that he was relying on himself more than he was relying on God. It wasn't, he wasn't relying on God at all. But he saw his greater, his greater dependence was on himself. So this revelation, a trust in himself, eclipsing his trust for God, his hope for deliverance or rescue, relying on himself, this misplaced trust, this confidence in himself, it led him to a place. It led him to complete despair. Paul describes his trial so severe that he expected death. The revelation he received from God about this situation was for him to see that he responded to it in a self-reliant way rather than a God-reliant way. However, as his dependence shifted, so did his hope. And that's the direction for us today. Paul saw the benefit of this trial in being so clearly, helping him to so clearly see how he responded to it to see that he wasn't relying, trusting in, or following God to the dimension that he needed to. He was looking more at himself, which is so easy for us to do, for me to do in trial. Trials reveal things, don't they? They gives us the opportunity to turn and trust God where we're not, to trust and to depend on the promises of God, that they would come to light. Trusting that a sovereign God is in control, even over this, over trial, every trial. That's the goal that we have as believers. And now that Paul's trial was over, Paul looks back and sees what had taken place. He sees that God had delivered them, that God was the deliverer. It wasn't through Paul and his experience or his intellect or his training or his wisdom. God delivered them, and Paul was now convinced of that. So Paul then, based on his experience, now has the faith to trust God in a deeper way when looking forward to future trials that may lay ahead of him. And through his experience, he's encouraging the Corinthians and through them encouraging us to have that same faith. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul realizes, and through this trial, can see more clearly when his hope is centered on something other than God. He's now centered his hope on God, and through his experience of relying on, trusting himself, and therefore feeling the burden of self-trust, he's encouraging that to change. He's encouraging the Corinthians and us as well to see when there is that level of self-trust to change that dependence because your hope will follow it. You see, adversity, as Paul puts it, or affliction, point one is just difficult by itself. 
And when we're carrying a load of affliction without depending on God to the fullest extent, sin begins to have an influence on how we're processing life. You see, self-trust is not a sin that lives by itself in our hearts. This sin of selfish pride brings company. With it, an attempt to rule our hearts and motives, typically fear and anxiety become unwelcome guests. Jerry Bridges says this, We must accept adversity and resist anxiety. We often do the opposite. I think that's so clarifying. We must accept adversity. Adversity is part of life. We must accept adversity, but resist anxiety. But we typically do the reverse. We don't want adversity. And we allow anxiety to rule. I know that that is my temptation. Anxiety is fear that quickly gets the situation out of focus and convinces us to see the trial with ourselves at the center of life, not God. Fear seems to easily convince me of things that are not true about myself and about God. The moment of adversity as it's pressing in, the wrong perspective of how I feel can begin to rule how I think and how I act. For example, let me review some of the feelings that I'm tempted to have when adversity is just pressing in. Number one, I can feel this trial's too hard for me to endure. It can't be God's will. Rather than the truth, God is more concerned with my soul than he is with my comfort. We see that in this in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you can see feeling and how it presses in and how anxiety feeds that. But yet, what is truth? How about this? I feel God doesn't love me like I thought he did. Or this wouldn't be happening. Rather than, God is a good shepherd. His word declares him to be. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. I shall not want. Or this feeling. I feel this injustice is wrong and God is powerless to stop it or he would rather than God is sovereign in this and in complete control Romans 11:36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen feeling and truth I feel that God will not protect me. I guess I'll just have to protect myself rather than God is the one protecting me, the one I can now run to. Psalm 46, 1 and 2. God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in times of trouble. That's the truth of God. Next one, the feeling. I can feel like I can't carry this any longer. I don't have what it takes to get through this. It's beyond what I can do rather than God said that all power is found in him for me to live this life. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. This last one, I can feel so alone. 
God must have left me on my own to deal with this. He's not with me like I thought he was. Rather than God will never leave me or forsake me. Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to, do, <clears throat> excuse me, even to the end of the age. Or Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see how the truth of God's word speaks into the adversity that we're living, and it must, and we must draw on it because the feeling that runs in our hearts and minds that can be a source fed by anxiety and fear, if we're not careful, can rule and will lead us to despair. So it's walking through the trial that reveals the heart issues to us, through the pressure that we have, we can see more clearly who we're placing trust in, ourselves or God. Jerry Bridges goes on to say, we must see our circumstances through God's love rather than what we're prone to do. See God's love through our circumstances. God is with us. So do we show a lack of trust in God and instead show a trust in ourselves? Do we see the misplaced trust and confidence in ourselves as serious as God sees it? Charles Spurgeon had a message on this passage, and here is one of the quotes that I'll draw on that helps me to see the seriousness of self-dependence. He says, To trust in oneself is a piece of impertinent pride, insulting to the majesty of heaven. It is a preference of God of ourselves to God so that we take our own opinion in preference to his revelation. We follow our own whim in preference to his providential direction. As it were, become gods to ourselves and act as if we knew better than God. Let me read that last sentence again. Excuse me. We follow our own whim in preference to his providential direction. We see, as it were, become gods to ourselves and act as if we knew better than God. It is, therefore, a very high crime and misdemeanor against the majesty of heaven that we should trust in ourselves and in whomsoever this exists. It makes a man intolerable to God. You see, self-trust is something we want to root out of our lives so that we can express that hope in God in a fresh way. Paul here was being able to trust God for deliverance, this time in securing hope in God for every future deliverance. See, trials are inevitable. They should not surprise us, but they always do. But as it was with the Apostle Paul, trials are revealing. The question for us is what's being revealed? And what is being revealed? What are we doing in growing in our belief and obedience to God? Our trials put our dependence on display for us to see so that we can see where are we placing our hope. I love the example that we see in Christ himself. In John chapter 16, where he's talking this last discourse with his disciples, and he says this to them. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
How did he prepare them for trial? Look to him. How do we prepare for trial? Look to Christ. Don't you know as he's talking to his disciples there, he's stating the obvious. In this world you'll have tribulation, but then he states such a powerful statement that should draw our attention to Christ when we have adversity. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. There's nothing that Christ has not overcome. There's nothing that's greater than God. There's no adversity or any root of any adversity. There's no sin in our lives that has not been conquered by Christ. His power is unquestioned. He's overcome the world. So burdens are a part of trials. But because of the truth of the gospel, our union with Christ, our position in Christ is the beginning of our resistance to this enemy and this temptation. It's the sure ground of our faith to resist. For Paul, for me, for many of us, self-reliance was a burden, but relying on God brought freedom. Paul wrote this book in 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. It's recorded around 55, 56 AD. It was written a year or so after he wrote 1 Corinthians and a year before he wrote the book to the Romans. What a wonderful book. He wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, something I'd like to just freshly draw to our attention, something that we all know, but to hear it in context of a man who has grown in his understanding of dependence. He says, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I love the way he phrases that. For we know, it's an encouragement to the church. For we know, let me review what is true. For we know, not for we hope. Not for we feel. Not for we wish. No. For we know all things, and whatever your adversity is, it included Paul's adversity. Was it in his mind as, he pen, as he's pinning this? For we know all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. An expression of God's sovereignty which is so important to be clear in the midst of our trials because our trials don't have an end date. We don't know when some of them will conclude. But if our eyes are on God, the one, the God of angel armies that we sing, when we see he's before us, behind us, when our eyes and our hope is in him, then the trial fades from being the most important thing in our lives to allow God to be in the sinner. Verse 10, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, in essence, Paul is telling them and us, he did deliver, he is delivering, and he will deliver. So whatever trial or adversity you're bringing in today, let me encourage you. Let's all learn from Paul's experience. Don't misplace our trust. When adversity strikes, if you find your greatest dependence is on maybe your financial portfolio or your strength or your good health or your stable job or your academic accomplishments or your social status or anything, a 
allow that to shift, that dependence to shift so that your hope follows. John Piper says this, God always aims to glorify himself in one or both of these ways in our experience of adversity. He always aims to wean us away from relying or trusting or hoping in any help but him alone. Adversity by its very nature is the removal of things on which our comfort and hope have rested. And so it will either result in anger towards God or greater reliance on him alone for our peace. And his purpose for us in adversity is not that we get angry or discouraged, but that our hope shifts off earthly things onto God. Let's purpose for our hope to shift off of whatever earthly things seem to take its position and be focused upon God. My final point, trials bring opportunity. Verse 11, he says, And you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul uses strong encouragement here for us to pray. When we stop and pray, our attention gets focused on God and on truth and off of our feelings. How often do you think about your trial and how often do you pray about it? I think Paul would encourage us, let's pray more than we think about it. Let's pray more than we worry about it. Let's pray more than we talk about it. Now in Galatians 6, 2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear our burdens together. That's part of the fellowship that God's called us to. But in that bearing, let prayer have a place to bring the power of God to help one another. Paul ends this section with prayer as a means to participate with other believers, yes, but also to bring the power of God and the awareness and available comfort from God to bear in each and every one of our situations. Paul could have ended this in a number of different ways. He could have said in verse 11, and you also must help us by financially supporting us, by providing food. We need provision. By declaring the injustices that the false apostles are bringing. But he doesn't. You must help us how? By prayer. Must help us by Paul seeing the importance of that in support of him, in, in interceding for him, but also in the lives of the Corinthians to show the place of prayer. You see, prayer is like a pair of binoculars or a telescope to bring the image of God closer. Go from distant to close. And the truths of God are like the little button that focuses that and refines the view to bring that image more clear, that view of God more clear. Trial tends to cause our view of God to seem distant and confusing and blurry, but it's prayer that helps to bring hope for God clearly into perspective into biblical perspective. See, the result of this request for help by praying 
for Paul and his companions is that many would give thanks in seeing the blessing that comes from God answering those prayers. Prayer allows the whole church there in Corinth to participate in the mission with Paul. As we pray, even less, this last word through the rich as he's gone to Guatemala, we're participating in the work of God in that way. Johnny Erickson Tata is a wonderful Christian woman. She is, as you, I'm sure you know, she's been in a wheelchair paraplegic for over 50 years. But her contribution to the kingdom of God is great. Not only their great books, etc., but her prayer. There's nothing that keeps us from prayer. See, we can look at prayer and think, well, that, that's like, well, you know, I'm not an evangelist like this person. That, they're gifted in that way. I'm not a gifted teacher like they're gifted in that way. We can put prayer in that category. Prayer is not a gift in that way. Prayer is a privilege that every Christian has. There, there is no closer step anyone has to the throne of grace we're all the same. Prayer is that avenue that God has given to us that we can all express and grow in and enjoy. And there's not one that's more gifted in that than another. There may just be one that practices that more than another. Let me encourage your practice of prayer. It will allow your trust in God to get a greater clarity and a more constant support. So in conclusion, I'd like to draw one final quote from Jerry Bridges out of his wonderful book, Trusting God. And he says this, Can you trust God? The question itself has two possible meanings before we attempt to answer it. Can you trust God? In other words, is he dependable in times of adversity? But the second meaning is also critical. Can you trust God? Do you have such a relationship with God that such a confidence in Him that you believe He's with you in your adversity even though you do not see any evidence of His presence or His power? So let's conclude with answering those, or at least addressing those. Can you trust God? Is God able to take and steward your trust. Well, let me give you some reasons why he is. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of the world. He's the author of your salvation. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. He's the creator. He's the author of your salvation. He invites you to come to the throne of grace. We read that earlier <clears throat> excuse me, in our scripture reading, with confidence, draw near the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. He knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 6, 8. He's your shepherd. He restores your soul. He leads you down paths of righteousness. Psalm 23. God is able to steward your hope. God is able to properly take your trust and ensure that is completely secure. So can you trust God? Yes. 
Now can you trust God? I would encourage you to look at who you are in Christ. Christ redeemed you by his blood. Christ justified you, declared you not guilty, and gave the righteousness of Christ to you. Christ forgave you of all your sin. You're adopted into his family through the sacrifice of our Savior. And one day, he's coming for us. One day, he will come and we can go back with him to our home in heaven. But until that day comes, he will never leave you or forsake you. See, all these are biblical reasons why we can trust God, yes, and why we can trust God. So if you're ever getting dim in that perspective, pull out God's word. See what God's word says about God and believe it, trust it over your feelings. And my final word, I'd like to go to any that might be an unbeliever, someone that's not a Christian that's here or watching online. The one you have to trust on is yourself alone. We would love for that to change. I would offer you the gospel message that we see in John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world. That includes all of us. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him and brother or sister, we would want you to be included in the whosoever. Whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. Put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can trust in God through any and every adversity of life. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of Christ. And we thank you for how you live in us, in your spirit. And we pray, God, for your grace. Lord, we ask for your grace to live and walk through the adversities that we are carrying today and any future difficulty, trial, adversity that is in our path between now and when you return. And may we face each one with hope in God. May our trust in you exceed any other trust in our lives. And Father, we Thank you for what you've given to us in Christ. In Christ we pray. Amen.